Hello and welcome to the Future of Europe podcast, a production by the European Network. Europe is at a crossroads and there are many predictions as to what direction it will take. And in this podcast, we will look at the key issues that will affect the European sphere in the next decade. Our podcast covers the big topics that will affect the future of nations that inhabit the European continent. And we will also bring a uniquely Irish perspective and address how the smaller European states are going to progress by using Ireland as a benchmark. Our guests will be from many different walks of life and backgrounds, each bringing their own ideas on how the Europe of today will become the Europe of tomorrow. This series is presented in cooperation with the Communicating Europe Initiative and the CEI was established in 1995 to raise awareness about the European Union and to improve the quality and accessibility of public information on European issues. You can find out more about the CEI by visiting their website at dfa.ie. My name is Ken Sweeney and in this episode we will discuss the future of the United Kingdom post-Brexit. Joining me are three guests, each from the UK but with very different perspectives. Gary Partison was a youth and student leader and worked in the Scottish Parliament in his younger days and is now working on policy and communications in Brussels. Gary is a graduate at the College of Europe and voted in favour of Scottish independence and continues to support independence and Scotland returning to the EU. Anna Ostrovsky is an undergraduate student studying politics, philosophy and ethics at the University of Chichester. Although a British citizen, Anna is ethnically half Mongolian, half Polish and has lived in Saudi Arabia for 18 years. Anna has a keen interest in domestic politics and international affairs, and her main topics of interest are anti-communism, global HIV awareness and treatment, and the progression of LGBT plus rights. Will Hayward is an award-winning Welsh affairs editor at Wales Online and the Western Mail, and has recently published his first book, Lockdown Wales, How COVID-19 Tested Wales. Will is currently writing his second book on the disability of Wales being an independent country. Guys, thank you all for joining me in this podcast. I wanted to start off with a few general questions for our non-UK listeners. And maybe what we can start with is the actual UK itself. Anna, maybe you could tell me, what is the UK? Is it a country, a state, or is it just a union? I would define the UK as a union of four nations with their own cultures and distinctive identities. But um, they share a history, a long history, and... Um, Their culture is very rich and has been forged over many centuries. Um, But I think that the uh, stability of that union cannot be uh, taken for granted. Yeah, exactly. And Will, um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Uh, uh, To to most extent, I think um, it's a a relationship, isn't it? And you've got to kind of cultivate these relationships to maintain them. I, I think it is worth, I mean, to me, the UK is a country in of itself as well. Um, I'm from I'm English but I've lived my entire adult life in Wales and I've always kind of considered myself British and part of that British identity mm-hmm. was the fact that I was part of you know uh, lots of other countries were um, together so I, I think um, I think it is actually possible for it to be a, a union a country and a state but um, uh, I, I mean I might say that quite quietly in the pubs in Cardiff. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary I know you voted um, in the previous uh, referendum for independence for Scotland so how what's your opinion on the UK I mean do you see it as, as a country state or? Yeah I think it's uh, it's fair to describe the, the UK uh, as a union um, I, I think for us, it's uh, also looked at, especially post devolution, as a as a union of polities, uh, so you know, political uh, societies, as it were. Uh, and of course, um, one of the uh, main differences I think that you might see from England and from Wales and Scotland is that if we look at uh, polling and social attitude survey, we see that British identity is not as high. 
uh, in Scotland as it is elsewhere. And there's almost an element of a kind of transactional uh, union uh, in which uh, quite even a number of people that support uh, remaining in the union do so uh, on uh, economic reasons. Um, so that I think that's maybe the difference. Uh, and then when it comes to those that um, support independence, I think uh, that we feel that the UK uh, union doesn't uh, well reflect the politics which are happening uh, nationally within our parliament. And because of the uh, first past the post system that we have in Westminster, the kind of uh, antiquated political system, um, it seems that uh, you know what what we're voting for and what we're supporting uh, is not very well reflected uh, in the uh, Westminster Parliament. So I think that's one of the main drivers. Is that you know obviously we already have quite a strong national identity, and uh, whilst that might be improved by independence, I don't think that's the rationale for people choosing it. Uh, I believe uh, it's more about trying to get the the right kind of governance that would actually uh, help us solve the challenges that we're facing at present. Will, is there any connection that what Gary's saying to the issues that are happening in Wales as well? Yeah, I, I suppose um, it, it's what's a bit different with regard to Wales is uh, Wales voted um, to leave the EU. So that there's not mm-hmm. that driver, which I know was a, um, a big driver in Scotland. Um, there's, I, I think for many people in Wales, actually, the pandemic has really um, accelerated it. Um, it. There was just no consideration in that first lockdown that Wales would go its own way. It just wasn't even a consideration. And now it is, it's kind of unthinkable that Wales wouldn't have something different. I mean, as an example, Mark Drakeford, he, he'd be able to walk down a high street in Cardiff when he was first minister before the lockdown. And I, I'd be willing to bet that nobody would recognise him. Now he's one of the most well-known faces um, within uh, mm-hmm. the entire um, within the country. So what we're seeing is, is actually... Um, uh, an acknowledgement Wales can actually now go it alone, actually, but actually it can be fairly successful when we do. And I think that's broken down quite a lot of um, uh, misapprehensions that people maybe had about independence and, of course, devolution itself. And I think now that genie's out of the bottle, it's not going to be something that's going to ever be put back in. And that idea yeah. of governance and having control over, I mean, Wales has never really voted. I mean, it's never voted for a, a Tory government. And I think as... Um, Gary was saying it's a way of essentially getting governments which are more reflective of what people in Wales want. Yeah. Anna, do you think that Brexit amplified independent movements in the UK? Because you you kind of got a bit of a different perspective on it, I suppose. Oh, well, I, I absolutely think that it has. I mean, you can already see and feel Nicola Sturgeon manoeuvring to defend and befriend the EU and that they hope to join once they get independence. I mean, two years ago, I, I remember, for example, the SNP... Um, leaders uh, and MPs were sharing this post that implied that the EU had arranged this light show uh, for them saying Europe uh, loves Scotland. And uh, e- even the when the Euro- European Commission said that that had not happened, that was not a thing. Um, I-, I thought that was very bizarre and interesting. And then also recently, um, during the pandemic, Sturgeon defended the EU vaccine programme um, and and said that Boris had had made a mistake in not joining it, and I mean now I think we can see that that was not the right move given the success of our um, vaccine rollout. But regardless of that, I think yeah, um, Brexit it, it is affecting uh, the narrative that um, in particular the SNP are using for independence. They've never really shied from being a pro EU political party, have they, Gary? 
Well, certainly in, in the kind of modern era of the SNP, it's, um, it's been, the, kind of the phrase has been independence in Europe. So it was the, the idea that, you know, we should be uh, a member state in our own right. Uh, and, you know, I think it's interesting we talk about vaccines, for example, because I think the UK uh, COVID experience has been quite difficult for, for uh, the British government, but they did have a, a kind of positive experience uh, when it came to vaccines. And I think that's that's maybe started to roll back a little bit, especially as we see the UK's lack of integration with things like the COVID um, passport scheme, uh, you know, to be able to travel. Um, and uh, we see production problems because the UK, as we know, it's a, it's a net importer uh, of, of most goods. It doesn't uh, produce enough to sustain itself. And we're already seeing problems with supermarkets, etc. Um, so, you know, I think... Um, I think the idea for, for Scotland is that we, we probably always recognise that <clears throat> exports uh, are uh, a big part of our economy. Uh, we also recognise that we do import as well. So I think um, we do want to be part of uh, a wider, um, you know, kind of global trading block such as the, the EU. Um, but, you know, we want to have... Um, political parity uh, so that we do have uh, a representative uh, in Brussels as opposed to not having a representative in London that when we do um, have the, the right to you know veto uh, certain uh, rules and laws that we don't uh, that we don't support like any member state has the right to do we don't presently have that that right within the UK uh, <clears throat> and that we would feel that we would want to have more of a um, opportunity to serve I think uh, in that kind of wider parliament. So if you look, for example, Ireland uh, has, um, you know, Mary McGuinness, uh, who's able to, you know, take a leading position, whereas uh, most of the Scottish uh, representatives in Westminster, they'll be, uh, you know, sidelined to uh, backbencher uh, positions. Uh, so I think when we compare the idea of the UK and the EU, they're very different uh, entities, um, because one of them is based on uh, it's a transnational union of, of basically member states, and the other one is a kind of informal uh, union of polities, uh, which is kind of based on uh, old traditions and uh, based on an imbalance of power between uh, its constituent uh, countries. So I think perhaps one of the drivers for independence as well is uh, the kind of the, the lack of hope that there would be any uh, chance to reform the UK. Uh, and, you know, we talked earlier on in this podcast about the fact that the House of Lords most people apparently in the UK support reforming it, yet um, it's not something that could be changed. And we often hear, well, we have to defend the traditions of the UK, uh, so we can't reform things like the voting system and we can't reform things like the uh, the democratic makeup uh, of, of the parliament. And I think that, that is quite frustrating for a lot of people who support independence. And for a long time, they've basically uh, abandoned any hope that they could change the UK. And they thought, well, actually, if we look to countries like Ireland, if we look to our northern neighbours, uh, or the fact that you know most of the member states of the EU are actually similarly sized uh, or uh, you know even in population or landmass, uh, that we actually could really have a, a good opportunity to, to be part of something which is on a more equal uh, and parity basis. Well, Brexit was a strange conundrum for Wales because, as you just said, Wales did vote for Brexit. But the question I was wondering about was, was that because there's a spill of a lot of English people in Wales and vice versa? Uh, this is that's a, a line that a lot of people, um, especially in Plaid Cymru, have put forward as in real Welsh people would never vote to leave the EU. But actually, the, the most one of the most English heavy parts of Wales, Cardiff, was the main part that voted to remain. So I, I don't think there's actually necessary 
much in that. Um, the places that voted uh, for Brexit in Wales were the same sort of places that voted for Brexit in England. It was places of higher deprivation, um, more predominantly working class areas that have seen a massive decline in their industry. Um, so I, I don't think it's uh, we can say that it's English people coming to Wales that's driven that. Um, I think if we're going to, I mean, the Yes Cymru, which is the pro-independence movement in Wales, actually doesn't take a line on EU membership. Um, it's that's they say that's something for an independent Wales to decide. And I, I think that's, I think you can argue that that's not the case. It is for an independent Wales to decide. I think the vast majority of people who are supportive of independence um, were um, Remainers. They wanted to remain in the EU. And some of them, their very motivation for wanting independence is to reclaim that uni- European um, Union citizenship as they see it. And uh, But I don't think this is um, any guarantee. And actually, I, I think it's it would be quite foolhardy of the um, especially because Brexit is such a polarising issue now. I think mm-hmm. the idea of running an independence campaign in Wales on the basis of you'll be European, you suddenly ostracise a lot of people who are quite entrenched in a very different position. So, mm-hmm. um, no, I don't think that is, um, I don't think, I don't think we, I think most people who support independence in Wales wanted to remain in the EU, but I think the independent campaign is going to face some real challenges as they have to be a bit more coherent in terms of their arguments for independence because people want to say, you know, what happens in an independent Wales? And they, they're they trying to straight back it and say that's for an independent Wales to decide. Gary, would it be any case where the SNP would abolish the idea of independence if there was major reform in the UK? Um, I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but, uh, you know, I think the, the there was a proposal from the Scottish Government uh, after the Brexit vote which basically said that they would settle for, uh, you know, an alternative, which would be uh, customs union, single market access, that, you know, we we voted to stay in the EU and that we still passionately believe in that. But, you know, in the uh, in the interest of finding a solution to Brexit, that was like a proposal that was put on the table and, and, and it was rejected outright. I think, ultimately, the, the position is really that it's down to the people of Scotland to decide. And if they decide that they want to elect... Um, Parliament, uh, a government that wants to advance uh, an independence referendum, that that decision should be for Scotland's uh, people to decide. Uh, and no political party, whether it be the SNP or the Tories, uh, should really be in a position to tell the people that they're not entitled to take forward that self-determination. So I, I don't think that the SNP would ever um, you know, say that it's off the table uh, and that people don't have that, that right. I think that's very important that, that people, uh, you know, have, have a voice, that people that support independence, they do have someone that they can elect and that, that they can uh, vote for. But of course, uh, at the same time, I think there's, there is a high degree of pragmatism within within the party. And uh, the, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, obviously said that uh, at the moment uh, she's focusing on the pandemic. Uh, and so she said that she wouldn't uh, take forward the steps for an next referendum, uh, at least uh, for several years uh, from now. Uh, and obviously there's there's differences of opinion of whether that that's the right thing to do, but it's, it certainly shows that um, we don't live up to the caricature that's often t- painted, which is just that it's independence only, only thing that matters. I think the the thing that matters most is empowering the people to have a decision. Uh, if they want to have a referendum, then it's the role of the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government to facilitate that uh, and for it to come about, and then ultimately it's for the people to decide. Anna, do you think that voting reform could go a long way to maintaining the union? Because you, you do have this force past the post sort of thing, and there seems to be a lot of criticism over that, um, be it in, internally and also internationally. 
I couldn't really say if I'm honest, but I I know that you know first past the post. It does tend to allow for only a Tory government or a Labour government, and even then, very rarely. So, if uh, you know such reform like independence or with or to do with the EU, if um, those are priori- made priorities by a Tory and Labour government, then maybe first past the post is okay. But I know that um, with another. Um, uh, electoral system with another voting system, then they could, uh, liberals could have a better chance, probably. But there would also be, you know, room for new new parties to come in, maybe as well, because yes, that course. seems to be a problem in the UK, isn't it? There's a bit of stagnation there, isn't there? Yeah. Similar to America in a sense. Oh, ab- absolutely. But I think, um, you know, there there is something to be said for the um, the notion that if you, I mean, it, it's it, it's democracy, so I suppose any any party should be allowed to run, but you might. Uh, you might allow for you know more fringe, more extreme parties to get more votes than they might do with first past the post. Yeah, and I think there is a problem as well, though, within the two major parties in that because maybe there isn't, I'm only asking this as a question, maybe there isn't an opportunity for those extreme parties to become sort of mainstream. And so what happens is you have you know, blocks within the major parties which are very extreme. So like you have the kind of far left and then far right within mm-hmm. the Tories and the Labour. Yeah, uh, it 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 all depends. You'd have to, you'd have to know the you know the demographic of your country and and what their their values are. Yeah, Will, do you think that the movement for independence could end up becoming a separate party at some point in Wales? I, I don't think it will because Plaid Cymru are formally in favour of independence. So no, I don't think that that will happen. I, I will just add for what you were saying on first past the post there. Sorry, I know yeah. you touched on it, but I no, mean, please do. I, I'm absolutely of the opinion that first past the post would solve a lot of the ills uh, that we're facing. Right. I mean, the, the problem with first past the post is that you can win a very significant majority by appealing to a very small, relatively small percentage of the population. And when you are in a mm-hmm. union of countries, appealing to a very small amount of people is going to create um, discord, isn't it? That That's not a, a recipe for... Um, uh, harmony. I think as well the the idea of fringe parties and smaller parties. I, I I can't persuade myself of the view that we shouldn't give people uh, equal voting rights across the UK and not have um, simply because we might all be horrific racists. Like I just don't think that that is a, a rationale for not giving people a proper mm-hmm. democratic process. And I think if you want people to engage with politics, give everyone an equal vote that matters, and then they're much more likely to engage with it than if the fact I happen to live in Kent but I'm um, left wing, oh my vote doesn't matter, or I happen to live where the Speaker of the House of Commons lives, so there's no alternative. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's just madness. Anna, oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think it does. Like that's the pro- the problem with uh, politics for the most part is that a lot of people are disengaged and they're not interested in what's going on in pa- mm. in Parliament, and and this this creates a great disillusion with with what uh, our our Parliament parliamentary democracy can achieve and i think this has led to a lot of um you know intense feelings about the brexit vote in the first place and 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 you know all these uh, talks about people being traitors and whatnot so i think maybe a change to the voting system can actually help us um, make sense of everything what we found uh, here in ireland is that britain seems to have a problem and i want to put this question to everybody britain seems to have a problem with referendums you know, when, what we've noticed when we do a referendum, there are so many stages that we have to go through before anyone gets near a voting booth for a referendum here in Ireland. You know, we'd have a we'd have a committee that comes together. They'll discuss this, uh, this, you know, the various proposals for a referendum, be uh, changing the colour of the flag or, or LGBT rights. And that will go as a sort of a quorum. There will be made up of 
people from all walks of life who will sit there for literally four to five weeks and go through each proposal regardless of how serious or how non-serious it is and then they'll make their recommendations which will go to what's known as a referendum commission and then the referendum commission will draw up a plan that will make sure that people have the right information it's completely unbiased information it's not from a government source it's an independent committee that's set up and then people are like, you know, weeks before we're even given the chance to vote, we're given, you know, something in the post. There's a big, there's a big uh, promotion online. There's uh, on TV, radio. All of these things happen before anyone gets near a vote. And I think when you look back on the two major referendums that we have, be it marriage rights or be it uh, the the uh, repeal of the Eighth uh, Amendment, which is in part to due to uh, right to life and so on. There was the success was in the fact that people were very well informed. And what I found is we don't seem to. We didn't seem to have that with either the Scottish referendum or in the Brexit referendum. I'm just wondering what you think about that. Maybe, um, Gary, if you could, because, I mean, the referendum Scotland was, was the first one that happened on that. Sure. Um, I think some people in Scotland have, have started to kind of promote the line that referendums are, we've had a bad experience with referendums in Scotland. And I would actually counter that. Um, you know, we've had, uh, for Scottish exclusive referendums, we've had three uh, in total, or, uh, yeah, we've had the... Uh, the 1970s devolution referendum, which uh, whilst uh, it didn't meet the um, extra conditions that were added in Parliament, uh, it was a very clear outcome. Uh, the referendum uh, for devolution was again a very strong, clear outcome that everyone agreed with. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the independence referendum as well uh, that we had in 2014, it was a two year long debate that we had. There was a very detailed uh, proposals put out uh, by both sides. Uh, there was a, a long national conversation. And of course, on uh, some sides, there might have been a small fringe of people that didn't accept the results, but in the main, you know, the vast majority of people actually accept it. So I think that for countries of, of our size, of polities with, you know, five to six million people, we actually see that um, referendums are, are a lot more commonplace. But I have to say that I don't actually expect to see a UK-wide referendum again for some time because I think that the uh, experience has been quite uh, traumatic for the UK and because it's exposed a lot of uh, internal problems uh, related to the, the nature of the UK's uh, public debate. Uh, the nature of the um, political system and uh, we were talking about alternative voting system for example um, I think the, the lack of having uh, an alternative voting system and the lack of allowing new parties to come to the fore it really has allowed uh, for this uh, spillover uh, through other means so when there was finally a chance with a referendum uh, for people in communities that were dissatisfied with both the establishment Labour and uh, Conservative uh, blocs that they found that that referendum was an opportunity to kick the government and to basically say, look, we're here and we're suffering and we don't like what's happening. Um, but if we were to look at other countries, for example, like Germany or the Netherlands, it would be impossible, I think, uh, for uh, a region uh, or a state of uh, or one of the landers of those countries to be taken out of the EU against their will because they have these uh, things like the Bundesrat, which is the um, their equivalent of the House of Lords, and it's actually composed of all of the um, political representatives of the um, regional lander governments, and they actually have the right to veto the federal government from uh, taking things forward. So it would probably be impossible for them to uh, go through with a referendum in the first place on leaving the EU unless there was a clear consensus for all. Uh, and so 
I'm not entirely sure if we will get to a position where the House of Lords become some sort of uh, balance between uh, the countries. But even the, the biggest proponents uh, of staying in the Union have said that we could never be a truly federal UK because we would not be able to allow you know, 5% of the UK population veto 90%, uh, that, me- that meaning that if Scotland said we don't want to have a referendum to leave the EU, that it wouldn't be seen as acceptable to a large proportion of the um, electorate in the rest of the UK to have their views um, stifled uh, and to not be able to proceed uh, with a referendum to leave the EU. So I can I can have some sympathy with that, but I'm not arguing that we should stay in the UK. So people that are arguing that and saying that federal, federalism is an answer, I think they need to find a way to square um, their proposal so that it actually enables us to access uh, a more um, kind of equitable uh, political uh, system. Well, Brexit was messed up because the referendum wasn't properly held. (laughs) Yeah, so I have a few points I'd say. I think um, we've conducted some pretty bad referendums, um, but I think also it's worth, as Gary said, pointing out some of the referendums have actually gone quite well. I mean, the um, votes in 1999 for devolution in, uh, so to form the Assembly in Wales um, and devolution in uh, Scotland, they... That actually was done well. And the reason it was done well wasn't just because there was a conversation before. It's because there was a plan of this is what happens the next day. The day after we have this vote, this is what happens. That was not the case with Brexit. We woke up on the morning of, was it the 24th? And we were like, what happens now? And all the people who had told us the things that would happen actually had no power to make any of the things that they've said happen. Um, And that was part of the issue. Whereas in 1997, you had a very clearly defined process whereby the people who had opposed it were brought into the tent. They were part of the conversation. They also owned the result um, of um, what happened from those conversations. So I think that's something that's worth drawing attention to is knowing a clear path after these um, votes actually can actually, even if it's not conducted in the best spirit, the fallout from it is what often people remember. Um, I think if we're talking about uh, the the structure of the UK, as Gary mentioned there, I think, um, I mean, it's come up a lot during COVID, hasn't it? You've got Boris Johnson, who actually doubles as the head of the UK and also the head of England, um, which would essentially be like the president of the US also been the governor of Texas. It's just madness. You would never design a country in this way. And it's because of the ad hoc way that we've essentially devolved powers in this country. Um, But I think with with federalism, uh, obviously, we we talk about it being unacceptable for 5% of the UK to veto another percent of it, but it does happen in other countries. I mean, Canada's got a very, very um, um, federal structure with strong um, uh, powers for the different provinces. And I mean, and Quebec is a really good example. Quebec was almost independent. I think it was was 50.05% or the vote. And now it it's, would probably be about 60% in favour of remaining part of Canada. And that's been done by, uh, through a, it's, a very, oh, it's much more complicated than I can go into in a, a brief podcast, but Canada's got, um, Quebec has got a lot of independent powers. It's got safeguardings for culture. It's got safeguarding for language. There's a very clear movement um, of money from richer provinces to poorer provinces of which Quebec is a recipient. And they do have the power to veto a lot of things in Canada. So it's about what norms are. And I'm not suggesting that uh, a federal uh, UK would instantly be fine with um, Wales vetoing uh, what the rest of the UK can do. But I think it's worth bearing in mind that federal UK isn't Wales, Scotland, England and Northern Ireland. I th- um, you've also got the northwest of England. You've got the Midlands. And I think people who vote in terms of voter bases, I think 
um, predominantly working class areas in the north east of England have got a lot more in common in terms of political outlook with the valleys in Wales than they do with um, the home counties in um, around London, for instance. So I think um, a federal UK isn't just four countries together. Um, I think it doesn't work if you have England as a block because essentially it, it would just be far too dominant. So I, I'm not advocating for any of this, by the way. I would, But um, this, that would just be the point I'd make regarding a, a federal United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very good point, but I, I will go back to my own original point about the Citizens' Assembly. Um, could it not have been a case that if you had have had a civ- Citizens' Assembly coming together with, with regards to, say, the Brexit question, they you know, as it, what naturally would have happened is that they would have addressed the question of what happens next. And I think that was the issue that it was a political party and a political movement that pushed the Brexit question. And there wasn't, you know, an act- as you said, people weren't able to sit down and discuss the consequences of a yes or the consequences of a no vote. Yeah, I think the issue, uh, part, well, part of the issue, uh, obviously, a citizen assembly would have made a difference. But part of the problem was none of the parties really, really wanted it. Like yeah. the David Cameron government wasn't, didn't, they campaigned against Brexit. So you didn't have any of the people who actually will ultimately be making decisions on this. None of them were for the side that actually won. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that was a very particular thing about the Brexit debate uh, and referendum is that actually it was, it, it was done for political expediency with, mm-hmm. you could argue, quite catastrophic results. Yeah. Anna, I'm sorry I'm coming to you a bit late there. We, I have plenty of time, so I wanted to get people to say a fair bit on this. Um, your opinion on this whole thing, I mean, the referendum itself, um, I mean, I'm not going to go in to find out who voted yes or no here because that doesn't really matter. Um, but the, the fact is, do you think that the referendum was a successful referendum? Um, I don't. And I think that it has showed a lot of the problems that our country does have with having referendums not that I think that because I think like Will you know you can't you know not allow referendums just on the off chance that you know they might decide something that you don't agree with so I think that referendums should be allowed but I mean two there was two main problems in my view of the 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 last um EU referendum and that one of them is a lack of of public engagement and you know the the National Assembly I remember um, when uh, Rory Stewart was uh, running to be leader of the Tory party, he proposed uh, national assemblies and got mm. laughed at by Mar- Michael Portillo. So um, I think pe- people in this country might not take that very seriously, but I think it's important to have national assemblies so that you know you can answer these basic questions of how. How is Brexit going to work out positively for the UK and, and and answer these little niggling questions that people have. I mean, for example, that is why, I mean, to to, to um, out myself, that's why I was a Remainer in the beginning. And, and it was because I didn't like how Brexiteers uh, didn't have a, a tangible plan for when Brexit would happen. You know, what would happen next? What does the vision look like? So, you know, I think if they did have this um, public engagement, then these kind of sort of questions would be forced out of people. Um, And then also it's a a matter of the uh, voting system and the referendum itself. You know, people need to understand how the parliamentary democracy works, because, you know, if people vote 
uh, for Brexit and they find out that, oh, it was actually just a, it, we were just an advisory um, referendum. People aren't going to like it if Parliament votes no, if they, if they decide against it. So I think people need to understand the, the, the systems that are in place. And I think that, you know, for example, with um, a narrow majority, that needs to be sorted out, for example, with, um, you know, either with a two thirds majority, because in both the Scot in the Scottish referendum and in the EU referendum, the, the majority was very narrow. And that allows for people to say, well, oh, even though this was a once in a generation vote, uh, it was so narrow that possibly people might have changed their mind. And that's why, you know, Nicola Sturgeon and Remainers, for, for whether for, they're right or wrong, they want another um, vote and I think that that needs to be ironed out because how many times can you keep voting and and I, I realize and I, I think it's justifiable to say that you know circumstances have obviously changed and we've left the EU so you know Scotland should get to decide because they voted remain in the EU referendum whether they want to remain in the UK and whether they want to have their own um, autonomy to decide whether they want to be in the EU and I think that's um, that's justifiable but i think those two issues need to be sorted out yeah and i mean we could you know also bring in the whole question about northern ireland and and why northern ireland has been such a problem for for brexit because it was a question that was raised here in ireland from the very start, back as far as back as 2014, um, we had lots of commentators in Ireland here when they were looking at the idea, concept of Brexit. They were saying, how is that going to work with Northern Ireland? You know, the warning signs were there. They were coming from the Department of uh, Finance here in Ireland. The revenue were saying, look, guys, it's not going to work. You need to listen to us. And I think it, it Brexit probably would have been a lot smoother uh, had Northern Ireland not been an issue. But like, we aren't going to touch on Northern Ireland today. And I know that um, it's a massive question. And actually, there are plenty of podcasts out there doing fantastic work on it. And if we if we did try and bring in the whole concept of Northern Ireland, we, we would probably have to add another two or three hours to this podcast. So I will promise that we will come back to Northern Ireland at some point with regards to the future. Um, but um, the one question I wanted to ask you, Gary, which I think is kind of a question that could happen, is that um, can an independent Scotland survive without EU membership? Yes, I think um, I think that's, that's definitely a good question. Like uh, every every part of uh, of Europe, uh, geographical Europe, apart of course, well, even including the UK, uh, has some form of relationship with the EU. Um, of course, it's the UK EU partnership uh, for countries uh, such as uh, Norway or Iceland or in ESTA. Um, so I think it would be highly unusual um, for a country the size of Scotland, with its historical links uh, and uh, its current trading uh, relationship with the EU for, the, for there to be no relationship at all. Um, and uh, I think uh, that there's a lot of sympathy uh, in Europe, as, as many of your listeners probably will be aware of, uh, towards uh, the situation that Scotland finds itself in. Uh, and so we've, we've had that echoed from the European Parliament and we've seen that from, uh, you know, from across the debate in Europe. Uh, and I think that that, um, uh, you know, means that we would very much be looking to return back to to the EU as a member state, um, but yeah, if, if for whatever reason that that wasn't to be the case, then uh, for example, if, if people in Scotland decided that they want to take a, a, another route, such as ESTA, then uh, I think that path's open to them as well. Um, but you know, every uh, every part of geographical Europe, even Turkey, is in the customs union. You know, like uh, there's there's no reason to believe that we wouldn't have uh, any uh, relationship with Europe at all. Uh, I think now what it's about is uh, trying to find what the, the right kind of relationship would be uh, for us. And uh, I think it's uh, definitely not in our interests uh, 
uh, for us to be at a distance uh, to, to Europe, which is you know not only the largest trading bloc uh, in our uh, environment, but it's also one which has already existing trade deals uh, with uh, many of the world's leading economies. And we find that those trade deals that the EU already has, uh, in many instances, are uh, far superior to the ones that the UK uh, are striking. Uh, so that's... Um, I think uh, definitely uh, the main the main focus really is uh, to find uh, what is the way that we can unlock uh, the Scottish people's aspiration to be connected uh, to Europe to to have a a more um, kind of equitable uh, society uh, at home uh, and to forge a new relationship with our neighbours uh, in all of the British Isles, which also includes. You know the, the Irish uh, state as well, rather than just uh, thinking about how we could make reforms internally to the UK. Is how can we actually stand alongside all of this, uh, all of the countries of this part of Europe uh, on a more equal footing uh, and work together on all the uh, opportunities and challenges that we face? Yeah, good point, Gary. Um, Will. Is it easier for a country nowadays in Europe to be independent because of the EU and the posit- because of the prospects that either A, the EU will support them in some form or another or they can get membership from it? Um, it, it probably is easier for some countries. I think you've got, If we, I'm going to speak just from a Welsh perspective here because that's where my... Well, that's what I want to hear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you got to bear in mind, Wales is um, not is part, it has one border and the border is with England. Um, unlike Scotland, it's a much longer border. It's a much more porous border. It's far more populated. I think the figure is, I think it's 50% of people in Wales live within 25 miles of the border with England. Um, if you thought it was tough having uh, negotiating the, the sea border with Northern <laughs> Ireland, um, if you had a hard EU border with England, that's a, that is a an immense challenge. The, uh, Denbyshire, Flintshire and Wrexham, the northeast of Wales, um, which many people in the far west of Wales seem to forget is actually a part of our country. Um, that's the most commuted out of area of um, the UK uh, for people for going for work. I mean, the capital of that area isn't Cardiff, it's Merseyside. Um, so I think that's, um, that is a challenge that it has to be addressed and it's the amount of people who are educated or work on the other side of that border or the nearest hospital is on the other side of that border and it's not to say that these are insurmountable obstacles but actually being an eu member state actually makes that i think there's an argument that makes that more challenging Mm -hmm. for wales and i think it's worth i mean talking this is a bit more of a uh, a broader just discussion on independence generally but there's a reason why Wales's border is much more populated with England than the Scottish border is and it's because there hasn't been for any sense of purposes a proper border there for about 700 odd years um, yeah. and where there's borders there has historically been conflict that doesn't have to be the case I'm not saying that there's going to be wars between England and Wales if there's independence <laughs> but you, it's worth pointing out why the borders with Scotland and England are so depopulated um, and there's a reason why the ones with Wales and England is very populated. And it's because there hasn't really been one. Um, so I think that's something that's worth bearing in mind. I think going back to your question, being an EU, being a member of the EU for a country like Wales, which is proportionally poorer than many other countries, there's huge benefits mm. to EU membership. There's huge benefits if, if you've got um, aspirations for presuming kind of liberal democracy and stuff like that. Although obviously the experiences we're having with Hungary and Poland are concerning. Mm. Um, but if you want to, the most important border for Wales is that border with England. And if you make it harder for stuff to move across there and, and bring 
um, 27 other countries into that debate. That's a challenge. And that's a challenge that I think um, the independent side in Wales haven't necessarily addressed, especially the ones advocating for EU membership for an independent Wales. Yeah, and I think this is the situation, isn't it? It's still very much in the embryonic stage, isn't it, in terms of Welsh independence? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's... And you, you can see it now because they're not thinking about those things. They're looking at their hearts rather than their minds. Well, I'm, I mean, I, I, at the moment, I'm writing a book about whether Wales should be an independence yep. country and I'm speaking to lots of people who are advocating for independence and it's been a great experience. So many people engaged who care about this issue and I feel like I'm doing a big collective urinating on their bonfire by asking questions. <laughs> but the way I see it is asking these questions, it's not... It's not trying to undermine the case. It's strengthening what is essentially quite an unthought through plan at the moment. And it, I think that the, the point I always make is, although Wales has got huge areas of deprivation, there's a lot of people in Wales who are just, they're doing well. They're doing okay. They've got, they're, they're comfortable. They've got, they're not well off, but, you know, they've got a, a decent job they've worked hard for. And when you advocate for independence, you are asking them to take a leap. You are asking them to take a risk. And you often you're saying to them, especially with in the Welsh cases, you will probably be poorer for 10, 20 years, but it does give you a lot of opportunities to essentially, uh, it's a far more aspirational way to, to live as a country, but you are still asking people to take a leap with you. And if you're going to do that, you need to have answers to these questions and they have to be thought through. And when the answer to these questions is, we don't know, or it depends, you need to make that clear. And I think that was an issue with the um, the Brexit debate is quite often the answers to people's questions were it depends or we don't know. And actually, sometimes people will take a leap with you if you say you don't know, but saying, oh, it'll be absolutely fine when you don't know it's going to be fine. That's a big responsibility that I think people who are advocating for independence should take seriously. I agree with you 100%. And th this is a problem that I believe personally that could be an issue in the Republic of Ireland as well, that people were going to get when they get to the val ballot box, if there should or ever will be a uh, question on the United Ireland, that they may just think about what exactly you're thinking about there. And they may say, well, look, hold on a second. Will I be poorer because of this? You know, or, you know, I might be well off in terms of my mind, body and soul, but will I be poor in terms of economically and how will my kids suffer? So, yeah, I agree. It is it is always something that has to happen. It happened with Germany as well. Of course, people, you know, from the outside, everyone looked at the unification of Germany as a positive thing. But in, in many respects, it was it was difficult for people who lived in, in Germany. Um, Anna, do you think ever there could be an independent England? Because we, we seem to forget that, first of all, England doesn't have a constitution. And secondly, it doesn't have a parliament. So, um, an independent England, is it ever going to be a reality in your mind? You're young, you're out there, you're talking to, to people who of all, all sorts and all backgrounds and all political sides. Is this a conversation that ever happens? Um, well, I think rational people might need to prepare for this being a reality at some point. I mean, I am a unionist, so it, I would very much not like, you know, to become an independent England, but... I have no doubt that we will um, survive as an independent country, but I think it, it, obviously it is in our interest, as people have been saying, to keep close ties with our neighbouring allies. I mean, I think in, ter uh, in terms of uh, keeping uh, Wales and Scotland in the Union um, like together, I think uh, crucially the point is that it is on us. It's, it's on England. I mean, based on the Brexit results per country, Brexit is mostly an English and Welsh venture but um, you know when they say uh, they say when times are hard friends are few and um, Scotland and and Wales won't be ruled by sentiment you know uh, the independence parties of these countries are painting the EU as this 
um, promised land with stability and its own currency and an idea of where it's going in a way that Britain does not yet have. Um, and like I said, this is why I was a Remainer, because I, I didn't um, like how Brexiteers, like Will was saying, wasn't, weren't answering these basic questions uh, succinctly. So um, I think, uh, and this is because Brexiteers are actually a, a diverse bunch of people who don't themselves agree what a post-Brexit Britain should look like. But I think uh, England, as uh, the leader of the Brexit venture, needs to know the values that the UK stands for and where it hopes to go. If it wishes to keep the union, then it's going to have to secure um, promising trade deals with international countries and or better its relationship with the EU. But I don't think it can shut itself out. Gary? Um yeah, I just wanted to comment on, on those two points, if, if possible. Yeah, sure. um, Yeah, so I really like what Will was saying about, you know, you're asking people to take a leap and you need to have the answers to the questions. And I think that, that's totally important. Um, but what, what we found in the 2014 experience was that almost um, this notion that, OK, if you vote for independence, that's the big, the big issue that's going to be, you know, uh, an unknown outcome. Whereas if you vote no, you're going to stay in the EU, you're going to, you know, keep things as, as they are, uh, and there'll be no change. And of course, that hasn't happened, that hasn't materialised. And what I kind of want to emphasise is that, you know, voting no doesn't mean status quo. Uh, and there is actually a change uh, on the unionist side as well. And so when it comes to uh, looking at those questions, I think it's really incumbent also on unionists and on the unionist political leaders, like the Prime Minister of the UK, to outline what their vision is for the future uh, after, you know, a no vote. Uh, and so I, th I think that's like a really important point that the UK is always in a state of, of, of change. And therefore, when you're having a referendum, you can't say that one side is the, the great unknown and the other side is, you know, uh, for sure. Um, because that's not, not how it's materialised. Uh, I totally so, agree with that. Yeah, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I ask all of you together collectively, how important is membership of the Commonwealth for, for say, Scotland and Wales and, the, and England? Maybe start off with you, Will, because, you know, you, you're writing this book in a moment and I'm wondering if that came into, into question at all. Um, well, the Commonwealth, when I've spoken to people, I mean, what actually more people cared about was whether we'd slap the England and Wales cricket team, um, <laughs> which was people far more, far more interested in, um, or whether we could change the name from the Prince of Wales Bridge for the Seven Bridge. But um, oh. I think the Commonwealth... It's an interesting, wasn't it? I mean, it ties into having the Queen as the head of state. Um, well, which would have been my next question, but maybe you can tie that in as well about it, Wales being part of a monarchy then as well. So maybe you could well, uh, give me your opinion on both of those. I mean, well, it, my, my opinion is I think if you're going to design a modern nation, the idea of having a monarch is a pretty bizarre thing to try and do. I think at yeah. the moment... Uh, of all the long list of things the UK needs to tackle in terms of issues, I actually don't think the monarchy is necessarily the first one. Um, really? Okay, well, I'm kind of surprised to hear that now. Well, but well, you're getting that feedback, are you? Um, no, well, I, I think the problem is you've got a lot of people are quite attached to the Queen. It might be different if yeah. it wasn't the Queen. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think, in, um, I, I think if it was Charles, maybe people would be like, oh, yes, just put it in the bin. Um, but I think that the Commonwealth and um, being part of the Commonwealth and stuff, I think is is one of those. It might be a question for an independent Wales. There's a lot of countries around the world that have found that they want to be part of the Commonwealth. There's others that haven't. I, I personally think the people who are looking to start a, a, a Welsh state based on equality, you know, abolishing the House of Lords. I think having being a um, a, a subject of someone is probably 
I don't think sits necessarily very well when you'd like to be a citizen of equal citizens within a, an independent Wales. So um, I, I think the problem is you sometimes when you talk about independence, you do run into that uh, question of nostalgia. Like, I mean, an independent Wales is far more feasible if it has its own country and essentially can um, uh, devalue that currency. Um, there's, uh, but also, if you said to someone, oh, you're not going to have the queen on your money, even though we all seem to pay contactless now anyway, people are like, oh, well. Yeah. Not, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I want an independent Wales, but I like the yeah. Queen in my pocket. Um, so it, I think it does run into the issue of nostalgia. I think you've also got to draw the difference between the people who are fundamentally in favour of um, independence on, on a real core level. It's it's part of a, it's a natural realisation of their own national identity. And I think the Queen being part of that would be quite bizarre. Um, I think the people who, as Gary was talking about earlier, have a much more pragmatic view that perhaps initially um, I mean I don't think you have to have the Queen as a head of state permanently in a time of great flux perhaps if that constitutionally makes it easier um, I'm not gonna, again I'm not going to go into all this now but I think one thing that is worth saying I just think I should probably mention from earlier when I was painting the idea of needing all the answers uh, if you're trying to put forward independence I think there also there, there does need to be that point of um, it isn't status quo versus independence. I don't think anyone looks at the United Kingdom as it's currently set up. Whatever sure. side of political diet you are and go, oh, well, this works fantastically. This is how I yeah. design a country. Um, and I, I do I do think sometimes the um, the whole thing of you'll be poorer, you'll be um, uh, X, Y, and Z, it does remind me of like when I was leaving home. Um, I, like, I mean, I, I would be, I would be, immeasurably better off now if i'd never left home i would have a full fridge i'd have um i'd have much more money in the bank i wouldn't have spent a fortune at uni living in a dump but actually is that a way to aspire to live um possibly not but uh, that that's just my kind of view and uh, as you've seen i love an analogy so and gary i presume the smp concept would be to to try and get out of the, the commonwealth or am i wrong not necessarily uh and as you know, I'm very passionate about international relations. Uh, yeah. And so when we look at things like membership of the Commonwealth, membership of the, the UN, or even of the EU, uh, which, you know, I'm not uh, just a, a complete cheerleader. I recognise that there are uh, needs to reform and improve the EU as well. Mm -hmm. When we look at membership of those international bodies, the question really that stands out to me is what does that mean? To people like from everyday life, people from like you know working class communities, what does being part of the Commonwealth actually mean to them? Uh, and so I think when it comes to uh, being like a small state and uh, engaging in small state diplomacy, uh, I think that there's a, there's a real interest in trying to follow like more of the Nordic model, which is like trying to uh, create a more progressive and inclusive international relations, and that's definitely something that I think is prominent within the independence campaign. On the question of whether or not we would be part of the Commonwealth, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but I'm pretty sure that Ireland recently joined or is an observer to the Francophonie, uh, which is a kind of similar organisation for the French-speaking uh, world. Yes, yes, we are, yes. Yeah, and so, yeah, just on that point, I think, I think the, the approach that we would probably take would be kind of something similar, which is to say, look, if there's a body like the Commonwealth or like the Francophonie, you know, it would make sense for us as a small state to, you know, make as many friends in the world as possible. And we would probably want mm. to be part of those organisations. But the question is not just being there for the sake of being there, but on what basis? How does that actually, you know, improve things for everyday people's lives at home and also for their aspirations for the world? How do we channel 
their interests and their uh, wishes to change the world through those international organisations and bring citizens through citizens' assemblies and, and, and wider discussions like that to really give them a, a role in shaping foreign policy. What about the Queen, though, Gary? Yeah, so uh, in the 2014 referendum, they decided that um, we would continue with the, the monarchy. Okay. Uh, and it is, it is the case that we um, we actually had the uh, crown of, a union of uh, crowns before we had the, the union of countries. So we shared a monarchy uh, for some time before. Now, you know, I think there's a strong uh, Republican tendency in Scotland as well. Uh, and uh, pretty much the position really uh, in the independence movement, um, or at least from the political side of things, was to say that if in the future uh, people in Scotland would want to have a referendum on uh, becoming a republic, that that route would be open to them. But in the interim, uh, that that was not something that was going to be progressed. Uh, and so I think that would be the same case um, elsewhere as well. And I just want, I wanted to leave on a, a kind of a funny note as well, was that if you actually look at um, the uh, Australian Republicans, many of them, including the leadership now, say, actually, we don't think that we should leave the monarchy just now. And uh, one of, I've seen a great interview, it was quite funny, where uh, one of the leaders said, uh, Queen Elizabeth has done such a marvellous job that we don't think that anyone could be a better uh, queen to, uh, or a better uh, monarch. So we think that we should, you know, go out on a bang and, uh, you know, say thank you very much, but you were the best and uh, we're not going to have anyone else. So I don't know if there's an element of that in other uh, movements where they say, look, uh, they recognise the popularity of the queen, but they also recognise that that might not be the case when there's a new monarch uh, or, you know, further down the line. So yeah. uh, I think for that debate, it's not so prominent uh, just now uh, in the independence uh, discussion. Uh, and it's more about actually the governance. It's more about the, the politics uh, rather than uh, these kind of uh, identitarian uh, constitutional issues. Yeah, you touched on the Commonwealth with regards to Ireland. I mean, we, we left the Commonwealth as soon as we possibly could. Um, because I think yeah. for us it was an it was it was a source of national pride. It was it was more of a move towards uh, relationships with the United States, and also we felt that the Commonwealth was part of royalty and so on, and felt to the crown and mm-hmm. all of those things just kind of added up to a bad feeling within our mouths, you know, about the whole thing. Maybe in hindsight, I think if we were to become independent at a later point, we probably would have stayed in there. But it's still, it's still a question that comes up every now and again. Um, some of the more conservative elements of, of Fine Gael, for example, are always saying that maybe we should rejoin the Commonwealth. But I, I can never see it happening here in Ireland. I think it would be it would be shocking if anybody was asked to vote on that, like, you know. Well- yeah. I don't think that I don't think the Commonwealth would be a major feature of our uh, foreign policy if we were independent, and uh, that's why I said I, I presume yeah. for you that being part of the Francophonie is not a huge part of Ireland's foreign policy agenda. But it's like, okay, here's another forum that exists. Why not be part of it? Uh, and I think that's probably the pragmatic approach that we would take. Um, and also, it should be emphasised as well that there's actually quite uh, there's already ongoing relationships uh, with Scotland has its own uh, foreign aid program, for example, and has relationships uh, with some African countries, for example. Uh, and uh, you know, when it comes to the makeup of our country, we, we uh, same as across the UK, um, there are uh, strong. 
um, you know, communities within our country uh, that have ties to, to those um, members uh, of the Commonwealth. So uh, maybe on that basis as well, uh, there would be uh, a feeling that being continuing with it uh, would, would be a good idea. I'm pretty sure that the white paper uh, suggested that we would continue with that, but I don't think it would be a huge uh, feature of foreign policy focus. It would be more so focused on things like the EU and the UN uh, and, and its constituent bodies. Anna, I wanted to ask you a question about the UK in terms of the, the, the royal family. I mean, you're a young person in, in Britain at the moment. I mean, how important is, is, the, is the royal family to uh, just people on the street nowadays? Is it still something that is a sense of pride to them? Or maybe I'm focusing a little, I'm thinking more about on England in this question here. I mean, I feel that uh, there are a lot of people who like them on a, on a symbolic level. I mean, it's something that they've grown up used to and they, they like the imagery but I think a lot of people in the in in England um, uh, they, they they do understand how you know all the arguments about you know how they they don't pay tax and and all the sort of underlying sort of uh, dodgy behavior that might go on uh, within the royal family um, but I think generally the England is still um, they, they still favor the monarchy and and I, and I certainly do on a on a you know, maybe on a traditionalist image-based in a image-based way, but um, I think, yeah, like uh, Will said, it's I don't know what's going to happen when the Queen uh, dies. I don't I don't know what the future of the monarchy looks like with Charles. You know, I think with William uh, because he's young and like us, and and he he see, he seems very. Um, compassionate and 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 has his own you know convictions and his own passions i think the the monarchy could survive with him but i'm not sure what that period with charles as king would look like yeah it may be short and sweet um just in just a last question of the actual podcast uh i'm going to put this to you all maybe we can start with you will how do you see um your your how do you see wales in five years time Ooh, wow um Making predictions after the last like six years is bold. I think scientifically, the only thing we can guarantee is it's going to be warmer. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I think the idea of um, devolution and Wales is kind of awakening of this devolved consciousness and the fact that things can be done differently. I think that will be a dominant um, thread to it. I think Wales will continue to try and. Um, flex its muscles. Um, it's going to be interesting. Mark Drakeford has said he's not going to see out this current Senate term, so there will be a new First Minister. Um, the th Drakeford is a, an interesting case in that he is um, pushing this Devo Max home rule um, kind of uh, agenda, but he also is naturally a very, very collaborative person. And I think, uh, to be honest, I think the UK government missed an absolute trick at the start of the pandemic, not bringing him in the tent because he would have been an absolute vote. Like he'd have been a good soldier for them if they, if he'd have felt like Wales had a part in it. But uh, so I think there will continue to be um, debates around um, um, independence. I think it's not going to go away. I think it will peak and trough based on what's happening. I think a lot of it will depend on um, what happens in Scotland. I would suggest that as the impact of Brexit is felt more through Wales and we see how much of the money actually ends up, being controlled within Wales, that will um, also have an impact. But um, I, I, it, it's it's very hard to say. I mean, 
Welsh, La- Welsh Labour are the great um, success story of pretty much any democracy. I think they're the longest, they've had the longest period of success of any democratic party ever um, uh, because of uh, within Wales. Um, so that will, but they have, they've evolved and they have moved from, you know, um, maybe reluctant devolutionists to give us every bit of power you can except the military. So um, it's going to be interesting how that develops. Um, but I mean, the main focus in Wales is going to be on the, um, uh, getting through healthcare wise. I mean, the, the waiting list in Wales were horrific before COVID and now um, now it's a real issue and we don't necessarily have the financial levers to be able to tackle them um, without um, Westminster. I think that could possibly be a flashpoint, especially when we consider that certain amounts of EU money won't be going to necessarily the Welsh government. It might be given directly to local authorities um, and we still don't have full clarity on how that will be spent. Gary, Scotland, five years from now, what are we looking at? I think there are some similarities with Wales. Um, certainly, the um, uh, the support uh, on independence remains high. Um, even within that support, around about forty to forty five percent haven't changed their opinion since the first referendum, and, and we find that that uh, um, sorry, I, I meant the, the the kind of overall forty percent of the electorate mm. um, out of the forty five that voted for independence, they seem to be quite sticky. Uh, and uh, they're, they're quite clear that they, that they want that. So it means that that, that block is not going away, but of course we've seen polls that have seen it go over the 50% mark uh, quite a few times. Um, you know, we talked about um, it's going to be warmer uh, in the UK, and that, that's very clear. Uh, we've got COP26 uh, happening in Glasgow this year, and I think that really uh, plays into this wider focus on climate, which is a, a huge uh, concern and a huge focus of, of the Parliament. Uh, with uh, COVID and Brexit, there's going to be quite a lot of economic upheaval, uh, and uh, there might be pressure that's put on uh, devolved uh, governments if there are uh, a repeat uh, of the austerity politics that we've seen uh, you know, from 2010 onwards, uh, that's going to be very difficult uh, for uh, for the country uh, to focus on. You know, five years in some ways is, is so hard to predict what could happen in such a short time, and uh, at the same time in politics, it's, it's quite a long time as well. Um, I, I think that uh, the First Minister has already given a bit of an outline to say that she didn't anticipate that we would uh, be beginning the process of going for another referendum until, I believe, she said 2023. So, I mean, that already takes us uh, quite close to that five-year mark. Uh, and uh, it would probably be in the latter half of the second, uh, sorry, of this uh, currently elected Scottish Parliament uh, that we would have a referendum if a process is agreed, of course, and uh, um, is, is outlined. Uh, so, I think it's really hard to, to predict how it's going to go for, for the whole UK at, at the moment. Um, the only thing that we do know is that we have huge challenges ahead of us, uh, and many of those challenges are time-sensitive, of course, the climate uh, emergency being the main one. Uh, so uh, the Scottish Government uh, has got uh, quite a lot of work to like focus on uh, at the moment, uh, as well as uh, the uh, overall question of uh, what the Scots want for the future. Uh, and I think the biggest deciding factor that's probably going to be on that latter question is really public opinion and how that develops over the coming years. Uh, maybe on one final point I would say as well is that the Scottish Parliament it's in its current form, the reconvened Parliament, it's still relatively young. Um, but we've found that across periods of like 10, 15, 20 years uh, that the Parliament has really grown so much in its 
confidence, the, popula uh, the population really looked towards the Parliament for answers uh, and for places to take forward their ideas. So I think uh, if the past is to continue in that same manner, then we'll probably see a Scottish Parliament again that's even more confident uh, of its role, a Scottish public that, that wants to see more decisions taken uh, locally uh, and empowered uh, within their uh, policy. Good points, Gary. But I did notice that you didn't say that Scotland was going to win the Six Nations in five years. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think yeah, we're well, all in we're, agreement. We're, we're building up. We're all in agreement on that one, <laughs> Anna. You've <laughs> got the big number. question. At, <laughs> Anna, you've got the big question at the end, and I I deliberately left you last because obviously it's good for you to get the points from the other guys. Uh, you know, the UK in five years' time, uh, change of government maybe. England has a great talent for, you know, stalling action if it needs to. So uh, perhaps we'll see very little change in five years, which is only one prime ministerial term. Um, and things will we will basically be in the same sort of boats where we're trying to push for change. Um, we may see ourselves with a new prime minister, but I'm not sure, you know, what the last straw for this prime minister will be. Um, but I think uh, an election seems imminent, but I don't know. And that this is the challenge. I don't know if Labour are ready to all be behind Keir Starmer. So I think in terms of uh, uh, change in government, it's it's up to them, really, because I, I, otherwise I see in, in five years, the Tories will be there all the same. And internationally, the UK, um, in terms of, say, its relationship with Europe and yeah. the world, what, where do you see that? Obviously, with, uh, you know, cuts to foreign aid and climate change and what's happening now in Afghanistan, it's easy to feel that, um, disheartened. And uh, I know I do. However, um, I think for Britain and its international role, it doesn't have to be so bleak. And I have hope. I mean, uh, in, t in terms of, you know, s sort of domestically, the, the vaccine rollout rollout success has already given us a taste of you know the merits of autonomy and we, we, although our problem though is with you know how we follow through and i think even though we are you know uh, we are do donating and providing you know vaccines to other countries we're not doing it swiftly enough um i think also it, it, for for england you know uh, while Honda is leaving, Nissan is investing in us and also Amazon and other companies are also investing in Britain and creating more employment. You know, wages are, are rising to incentivize uh, British workers to work for such companies. And I think that's really good. Um, and if the government can produce uh, a stable economy, then it can create a place for new businesses to flourish while old businesses flounder because of, you know, uh, transitioning with Brexit. Um, the main concern of mine is that I still don't know what the aims of the country are. What is Britain's vision? We seem to be wanting to do everything and ending up with, you know, a lot of nothing and, and stalling and, and waiting for something to happen. Whatever the state of the union is in five years, England must take it upon itself to build. And, you know, that means building relationships. And in this country, it means building more infrastructure and properties and more opportunities rather than just shutting itself in and feeling defeated because we're not an empire anymore and we can't bring football home. And, oh, no, you know, that's it's the end of us. No, you know, we are a small island, but we are a rich country that's made it this far and given so much, uh, you know, all of us, all four nations. And I think, you know, out of the lemons that is Brexit, uh, you know, I think this is still an opportunity for young people to be innovative and ambitious. You know, I want England to be uh, more outward looking 
I think a sense of global unity is essential in, you know, maintaining peace, and we need to, you know, have a have a role in that, even if it's on on our own. I think England should be trading with other nations, contributing significantly in providing foreign aid, not cutting it, and working with international, uh, the international community to, you know, stop uh, dangerous uh, rising influences like, you know, the CCP in China. Um, and I think our global influence and reputation is essentially important now. We're almost finished here, but I just really, now that you've touched on these topics, I, I noticed none of, nobody has spoken about rejoining the EU. So, um, you know, very short as you can. Gary, yes or no, Britain will rejoin the EU? It might happen in a long time, but I don't see it in the short term. Will? Uh, no, I think the EU will have um, changed quite a lot before um, uh, Britain mm-hmm. jo- uh, rejoins. I, I, I just can't see the political will or the political desire to do that. I'm intrigued now. Do you, when you say changed quite a lot, do you mean uh, moved forward in terms of more integration or less integration? I, I think it may have uh, moved forward. I, I mean, I'm, I think you're talking decades time. And yeah. you, I mean, if you look at how the EU is yeah. now compared to two decades ago, it's quite immeasurably changed. And I, I can't see that not being the case in 20 years when perhaps the uh, UK might seek to rejoin. Yeah. And Anna, final question for you. Uh, uh, Britain rejoining the EU. I think not in the foreseeable future. I think that the, the reasons that Brexiteers wanted to leave the EU will not have changed. They will become you know, more um, central that, than they were before. So I think it's, it's not going to be an option in the foreseeable future. Guys, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Uh, I think we've had a great conversation. It's been really enlightening for me. Uh, it's nice as an Irish person to sit on the table and listen to everyone talking about this uh, from completely different uh, backgrounds and concepts. Um, my name is Ken Sweeney, and uh, you've been listening to uh, the Future of Europe podcast. We are the European Network. You can find us on theeuropeannetwork.eu. I want to take my guests, Gary Partison, Anna Ostrovsky, and Will Haywood. Will, could you just give us a little bit of a notice on your forthcoming book? Um, is there a name? to it or have you got there so far any ideas of a release uh yes yeah, so um the um uh, terrifyingly it's uh, gonna have to be handed in in about six months time um <laughs> it's uh, it hasn't actually got um a, a title yet but it, it'll probably be okay. down wales as it's a follow-up from uh sorry it'll be probably yeah. independent wales as it's a follow-up from my previous one covid wales super and you can get your own your previous book lockdown wales how covid19 tested wales on i presume any good bookshop yeah even bad ones as well <laughs> There's no such thing as a bad especially, book. Especially second-hand ones, I'd imagine. <laughs> no problem at all. I'm sure, I'm sure what we'll do is, well, we'll get you on a podcast sure, when your next book is out, and I'm sure we can have a, we can have a nice in-depth conversation. It'd be great to get your feedback and like, you know, just your experiences of talking to people on the street about this. That'd be lovely, yeah. I'd, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, super. Thanks, guys. Um, you've been listening to the European Network. This is the Future of Europe podcast. We will see you real soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye. The Future of Europe podcast is a production by the European Network in partnership with the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland. Executive production by Ken Sweeney. Research and development by Ola Jasińska. Writing assistance by Brian Mill and Francis Cowell. You can find our podcast at the europeannetwork.eu.